Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. He's America's most recognized and respected frontline travel news journalist. And in this podcast, Peter Greenberg holds in-depth interviews with travel industry insiders, giving listeners practical news they can use on topics ranging from the shrinking carry-on luggage allowances to traveling through the Middle East. This is the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. And welcome aboard another edition of the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News, coming to you this week from the island of St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. If you've never been down here, it's a remarkable place, only 90 square miles, uh, but it's got three national parks, unbelievable history, and we'll be talking about that. A little bit later on the show, we'll talk about the fact that this island has three national parks. You didn't know that, I bet you that. And then finally, on a more serious note, we're going to be talking to Christine Negroni, who wrote an amazing book called The Travel, excuse me, The Crash Detectives. And it's about the unbelievable art and science of air crash investigation and what these investigators do to try to come up with a probable cause in some of history's most enduring mysteries, if you will. Consider this we've just celebrated the third anniversary. Celebrate is probably the most inappropriate word. We've just acknowledged the third anniversary of the disappearance of Malaysia Flight 370 and the fourth, the 40th anniversary of the largest uh, aviation disaster in history, the collision of two 747s on the ground in Tenerife back in 1977, Pan Am and KLM. Remarkable lessons learned from all of these and then remarkable lessons that have to be applied. We'll be talking to her a little bit later. But first up, when I talk about history in St. Croix, no better person to talk to than the third generation owner and general manager of a hotel that's become an institution here uh, and tells so much about the history of the island itself, Elizabeth Armstrong. Welcome. Thank you, Peter. Pleased to be here. You know, you're a third generation owner, but you're not a third generation islander. Correct. I'm actually the ninth generation of the Armstrong family to live on St. Croix. That's amazing. I mean, how did they get here? So my original Armstrong forebears were two brothers out of Scotland, and they arrived here uh, right about when the French still owned the island. Uh, they first settled in Tortola, then owned and still owned by the British, and then one arrived here and one went on to uh, Ponce in Puerto Rico. And then where we're sitting right now was actually a cattle ranch. Yes, so and when, nobody thinks about cattle when they think of the Caribbean. You know that. I know, and they and they should. Unless the cattle is wearing a speedo. <laughs> well, our cattle got to spend a lot of time enjoying the three beautiful beaches here at the Buccaneer. <laughs> uh, when my grandfather bought the uh, the property in 1922, it was actually a cattle ranch, and we had cattle and horses here right through the early 1960s. So actually, some Buccaneer guests still remember when you might see a stray horse uh, trot on down by the stra- straw chaises at the Mermaid. But there's still cattle on the island. There are. The St. Croix Centipoles are registered breed, and they're exported around the world, South America, Africa, Texas, everywhere. 
But when you think of the history of this of this island, way before the U.S. even got involved, everybody else seemed to have been involved. How many different flags? So seven different flags have flown over the island. Okay, of it Saint started Croix. had to do with the Spanish. Yes. Right, that's Christopher Columbus mm-hmm. back in claim oh, claim for Spain, 1493. A year after he claimed the the New World, supposedly discovering it. Yeah, well, that's another yes. story. Okay, then he was here. Then, so the English and the Dutch, so both England and Holland, uh, were on the island at the same time. English arrived slightly before the Dutch, and they co-held it. Was that a pleasant experience? Uh, Apparently not. They did a lot of fighting over property rights. Things would eventually come to a head when the Dutch governor would invite the English governor over for tea to work out details and then uh, just went ahead and assassinated him. The English governor. The English governor. And then it didn't take too long for the English to retaliate and assassinate the Dutch governor. And that kind of left the door wide open. And the French were a major power, still on quite a number of the islands of the Republic of the French West Indies, and they seized the island of St. Croix by force. So that it became French. So it went from the Spanish, the Dutch, the English, the French. Now we're on flag number four. Yes. The French leased it out in 1653 <laughs> to the Knights of Malta. And they, That's a strange one. Yes. So they were here a long way away, obviously, from their original mission during the time of the Crusades of protecting the Holy Lands, because the high chevalier of the French chapter of the Knights of Malta, Philippe de Longueville de Poincé, he had a large estate in St. Kitts, and he wanted to have control over that island and St. Croix. But the French king refused to give him a leasehold as an individual. So instead, with his influence within the Knights of Malta, they got a leasehold for the Knights of Malta that left him as the governor. So they were like the shadow government. Yes. They were exactly. playing a game there. Exactly. Okay so, now, okay, so let's go back. Spain, England, the Dutch, the French, the Maltese... That's number five. Yes. So then it was sold. First time it would be sold as opposed to taken by force, and that was to a private company, the Danish West Indian and Guinea Company. They had already purchased the islands of St. Thomas and St. John, and they saw St. Croix with our larger size as being a way to move forward in the, in the sugar trade. And for a period of about 100 years, St. Croix is the fourth largest sugar-producing island here in the West Indies. In fact, there are sugar mills at one point just about everywhere, right? Correct. How many are we talking about? So about 200, including the beautiful mill that we have right here at the Buccaneer. But that mill's not working anymore. Uh, no? No. Except for uh, weddings and uh, cocktail parties. But well, it's, does, working it as, it's working as a prop. <laughs> yes. Right. Does, no longer processing of, uh, of sugar cane. All right. So now the Danish are in. Yes. Right? But it was a private company. Yes. And they didn't do so well. No, they ended up uh, going bankrupt. And so it would, it would take the major shareholder, the Danish king himself, King Frederick. He would acquire St. Croix as the first of the crown colonies. So Danish government would move to uh, downtown Christiansted. And then later on, they would acquire St. Thomas. But it wasn't Thomas. called Christiansted until he showed up. <laughs> Christiansted and Frederiksted, named after Danish kings. There you go. Yes. So now the Danish flag goes up. Yes. And that lasted how long? Almost 200 years, from 1733 wow. until 1917, at which time the United States government would purchase these islands for $25 million in gold. A bargain. Yes. Even by today's standard. Even by today's standard. And in fact, this month, March 31, we celebrate our 100th anniversary of our transfer from Denmark to the United States of America. And we wanted it. Why? 
Well, not as a vacation destination. Not in those days, although it's been a fabulous well, place for that since then. Uh, no, the original interest was primarily a, a military installation, a way of protecting U.S. mainland borders and access to the Panama Canal. World War One going on, uh, German boats being in our waters, and so strategically it was deemed necessary, and that's uh, initially why the island was administered to by the Department of Navy. Wow, okay. and, and the U.S. has had it ever since. Had it ever since, yes. So, U.S. dollar, U.S. Postal Service, you pay your taxes here. Yes. Right? You just drive yes. on the wrong side of the road. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, wrong side of the road, sort of a holdover from our days of, uh, of the British of the British, and, and driving with uh, donkeys and uh, horses and carriage, and then deciding that nobody could learn how to be on the opposite side, and now we've just uh, decided that we couldn't learn to drive on the other side of the road either. Yeah, the, the donkeys won. Yes, exactly. They did. So when your grandfather had the idea to open this up, it was really your grandmother, right, who said, no, 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 let's turn it into a hotel. Yes, Yes, they had originally thought of a residence and then decided it would make a, a spectacular hotel. So our original 11 rooms were opened in the main hotel building in December of 1947. And what did your grandparents know about the hotel business? You know, they knew absolutely nothing, but um, we're, we're, we're quick to learn. My grandmother knew a lot about just hospitality and taking care of people. You know, originally she was a school teacher. She came here. Her father at the time was an undersecretary of the interior and the island needed school teachers. So that's originally, but she wasn't cooking for the guests. No, No, we had, we had a wonderful cook. Um, it's funny. One of my, uh, favorite sort of then and now stories that I share with guests, um, in our early days, we had turtle steak on the menu. Uh, sea turtles are abundant around our island, but of course, we now know that they're um, an endangered species. We're federally protected. So we went from serving them on our menu to actually, today, we're really proud of a collaborative effort with the National Park Service, where we uh, host their, their turtle scientists during the height of turtle season for conservation and research Right. And so basically, you can only go by memory when you tell everybody it tastes just like chicken. <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> nobody's killing them now, which is no, really No. No. That's great. So how do you maintain this heritage in the wake of major chain hotels, involvement, internet, people's demands about what they think they want in a resort hotel? You know, so many of our guests come to us on personal referral, either from uh, friends and family or travel professionals. Um, We're still very much a a word-of-mouth clientele. People looking for the experience, uh, the way the Caribbean used to be, people wanting a a family-run property where you still get personal care. Uh, Many of our guests enjoy the fact that they can interact um, with with family and and learn about the history of the island, the culture, all of that, and getting personalized service with an owner who's right on right on the staff. So we know who to call. Exactly. But you. Yes, that's exactly right. But you still right. have employees who've been here since day one. Yes, I have uh, one employee that was employed here when my grandmother Rachel still ran the property. Many who are working here today that remember and worked with my father Robert Armstrong when he ran the property. So celebrate. 20, 30, 40, 50 years of service is not uncommon. And the best thing for me, of course, not the best thing, but one of the nice touches is you don't have the draconian minibar. Yes, that's correct. We have a refrigerator, but no minibar. I love it. Elizabeth Armstrong, third generation owner 
and ninth-generation islander here in St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Stick around, because when we come back, we're going to talk about things you didn't know about this island in terms of national parks. They've got three. Stick around. The CBS Radio Travel Hour continues right after this. featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Welcome back to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. And we're back with uh, the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News, coming to you this week from St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And why am I here? Because most of you have no clue about what's here. You don't even know it's the U.S. Virgin Islands. You don't need a passport to come here. Uh, you don't need foreign currency to be here. Uh, it's 90 square miles, uh, an amazing location, which, by the way, if you hadn't noticed, also contains three United States national parks. And joining me now, the cultural resource manager for the St. Croix Parks, Meredith Hardy. How are you? Good. Thank now, you, you, heard, you, you heard my introduction, and I don't think I'm far from the truth. I mean, most Americans have no clue either where St. Croix is or what it can do, what it offers. Um, you know, they might think of it just as another Caribbean beach destination. That's correct. Um, when you tell people, when I even tell my colleagues in the Park Service that I'm going down to work on St. Croix, they kind of look at you like, oh, we have national parks, and do we actually own land down there? And, uh, or, yes, what language, do or what language do they speak? Yes, exactly. You know, do they use U.S. currency? The only thing that is different is that we do drive on the other side yes, of the road. Yes, we understand so, that, yes. Yep. So for those people who do not want to drive on the other side of the road, I always tell you, oh, should we run a car when we're in England or Scotland? No, you may not be in an accident, but you'll cause a few. <laughs> Don't do. Why would you add that level of stress to yourself? Because you're just not used to it. Exactly. And of course, what they have in those parts of the world are the, are the most dangerous thing: the roundabouts. Yes. Yeah. But forgetting just the wrong side of the road, everything else seems to be right. It is. It is. Um, it's a wonderful travel destination here. We have gorgeous beaches, beautiful, clear waters. The visibility is amazing for diving and snorkeling, and an amazing. Uh, history that not a lot of people really understand here. Well, the history here, well, we, we can go back to pirates, or as some people <laughs> would say, privateers, right? Buried treasure. How many people still looking for buried treasure? Oh, people are trying all the time. People have what, and these amazing dreams of finding a shipwreck, and there's like a, you know, with the with the mast still standing and sails, you know, still uh, underwater, and there's skeletons, and then there's giant chests of gold. So basically, we have to blame Johnny Depp for this. Uh, yeah. I just want to make sure, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. Black Pearl. Black Pearl, okay. Okay. You're not going to find the masts still standing, but you will find other things. You will find other things. It's subtle, um, and you may just quickly overlook it. You may not really understand what it is that you're looking at. Um, Many times when we find um, shipwrecks around coral reefs, what you find are ballast piles. And what those are, that's the weight that a ship would use. um, On the way over here. Right, on the way over here. And so as you're entering near a harbor, you want to release a lot of that weight. And so so it it can be stone, it can be bricks, it can be all kinds of things. Well, a lot of the stones that are here in St. Croix came over as ballast because they they were sending the ships over to return with things like rum. Yes, and sugar and all kinds of stuff. Right, so they'd leave the stones here. Yes, they would, they would use them um, to build the streets. They would use them as flooring in houses. They would use them to level areas so you could actually build up and develop. So they had a, a multi-purpose. Yes, they did. What have you found out there on the water? Um, we have, um, for the National Park Service, we are partners. Let me take a, just a little bit of a step back. We're partners in this international effort um, to identify slave ships. So it's called the Slave Rex Project with the Smithsonian. Well, isn't it true? Tell me if I'm wrong. Yes. But the first slaves that were freed, 
I think we're freed here. Uh, yes, this was the earliest emancipation, and it was actual self-emancipation. There was a revolt here on July 3rd, 1848. Wow, be- before the Civil War. Yes, before the Civil War. Who knew? Who knew? All right, so you, you, you said you're in a partnership. Yes, with the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture, George Washington University, several different offices here in the National Park Service, um, Ezekiel Museums in South Africa, and many other groups from around the world to identify shipwrecks that related to the slave trade. And so we have been running surveys out here at Buck Island where we know we have two ships that wrecked on the reefs, the uh, General Abercrombie and the Mary, and we've been trying to find evidence for those wrecks. But going beyond that, let's let, let everybody know, you have three national parks here. Though. Yes. You mentioned Buck Island, yes, so let's Buc- talk about that. So Buck Island Reef National Monument, um, originally um, uh, created for its marine reefs, but we also, for its coral reefs, but we also have a lot of uh, history going back a, a couple thousand years. We have Salt River Bay National Historical Park and Eco- Ecological Preserve. Again, a very nice balance of natural and cultural resources and Christiansted National Historic Site, which is the first national park here on the island, established in 1952. Um, and its purpose is to really... Um, preserve and tell the story of the economy and the history of St. Croix. And you're still finding stuff. All the time. Like? Like um, everything from little shards of pottery and pieces of glass to big um, tools that were used, that were brought over here from Europe and then used on the, on the fields, on the plantations, um, pieces of guns and swords, um, musket balls, cannonballs, all kinds of things. All right, so Johnny Depp still lives. Uh, somewhat. Yeah, okay. And anchors. Yes, we have anchors, yes. Um, so as part of these, um, of these magnetometer surveys we do out in the water, we'll get a blip on the screen, and then we dive, and we try to identify what those are. And sometimes it's a tire and a refrigerator or you know, a digital camera, but sometimes it, they're actually anchors and pieces of chain from these shipwrecks. Or it's a digital camera used by somebody who's trying to photograph the anchor. Oh, sometimes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but also, you go back here to the days of Christopher Columbus. Yes. Yes, we do. Um, for, uh, November 14, 1493, it was the actual first recorded armed conflict, um, or the, the, the first and by the s- way, skirmish when, here. By the, the way, islands. when you look at the real history of Christopher Columbus, it was always armed conflict with this guy. Oh, yeah. Divide he, and conquer. Anybody who thinks this guy was a hero, I mean, I don't celebrate Columbus Day anymore after I read this guy's biography told by the true historians. <laughs> this guy was a mean mother. He was, like, killing people. Well, that was part of the mentality is conquer, um, discover new things and conquer to get gold to continue to expand the territory for the king Here it is. Ready? I'm Christopher Columbus. I'm going to discover new things. You're dead. I'm going to discover (laughs) new things. Bye-bye. That's what he did. Yeah. Right? Yes, definitely. And we celebrate that as a holiday. Well, some might argue that that that's still part of the modus operandi for what we do today is go out and discover and take over and conquer and, and plunder. Right, but now it's called condominiums. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's called development. Yes. All right, so you're still discovering things from Columbus, but American history is big here too, Alexander Hamilton. Yes, it is. So um, not many people, well, let me back up. I think more people are becoming aware of it because of the play, because of the musical. But Alexander Hamilton right, by came the way, are you with doing his family. A, are, are you doing now a rap tour of the island? Uh, no, I am oh, not. I will checking. not rap. I okay. will not sing. Okay. So do not ask. But, but give me his connection here. So when he was 11 years old, um, he came here with his brother, his mother, and his father um, from Nevis. His dad um, 
worked for a, a company where he went around and collected debts, and uh, they came here in May of 1765. He was a loan shark? He was a loan shark. Uh, kind of, yeah. yeah. He was the enforcer. So he came to collect a debt. Alexander Vinnie Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> his father, James. <laughs> and um, they came here, but it turned out that his mother had lived here before. She had come here in 1745 with her mother to visit her sister, who had just given birth. And um, within a year, she had been married. She was married to a local landowner, and then she had a child. And within five years, that marriage had fallen apart, and um, she left the island after he had had her incarcerated for, let's say, not performing her wifely duties. Um, So she left the island in 1750 um, with her mother and went over to St. Kitts, where she eventually met James Hamilton. One of the stories that we have at Christensen National Historic Site is there was a jail. They did have cells. And that's where her husband, Yuan Levine, had her incarcerated. So we do interpret that story at the park. So let's jump ahead to 1765. She's been with James Hamilton now for many years. She's had two boys. They're a happy family. They come to St. Croix to collect a debt. They find out that she had been married before. Whoops. uh, Whoops. Whoops. Um, Her former husband had divorced her. Um, which in absentia. Means, in absentia, which means she had no rights, which means that the boys were now considered illegitimate. And I um, hate when that happens. Oh, it's terrible. And, um, and so by January, James Hamilton's uh, work is done, and he leaves alone, and he leaves behind Rachel and the two boys. And Alexander? And Alexander is here. He ends up getting a job with an import-export company called Beekman and Kruger. And that's where he really starts to learn economy. That's where he really starts to learn about um, taxes and trade. And when you're dealing with a really cosmopolitan port, thousands of ships coming into the uh, harbor at Christianstead every single year. And you don't have a, uh, a, a centralized banking system. You don't have a bank. You don't. Everything is done trying to translate currencies, basically, you know, at, it would change all of the time. So he's learning all of this as a very young boy. And by the time he's 14, he's been left behind to run the shop. So we have a lot of correspondence. He's the money with guy. Him. He's the, he's money, the guy. money guy. And he learns it very young and he gets really good at it. But he's also really frustrated. He doesn't want to be here. And we also we see in other correspondence is how he's dying to get off of this island. He wants to go have a life. <laughs> and um and and it happens eventually. There's a hurricane in August of 1772. And um, he writes a letter to his father, who's living on St. Vincent at the time. And, he and describes, by the way, when we talk about that in a very cavalier way, he writes a letter to his father. It probably took three weeks to get there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's an amazing uh, account of this hurricane. And it's got a, a notice of a lot of people, and uh, especially a local Presbyterian minister named Hugh Knox, who said, we got to get this kid out of here. They began by basically like a GoFundMe campaign, <laughs> and they got him off of the island by the y'all? middle of the next summer. It took him that long. Yeah. That's how bad he wanted to get out of That's here. That's how bad he wanted to get out of here. And it's interesting. So there's a poem that, was, that he wrote. He was a prolific writer. He wrote poems, and they were published in the local newspaper all of the time. And um, one of the poems that came out, I think, in October of 1772, it's an ode to Pope. And, um, and it's a play on one of Pope's um, um, poems. I can't remember the exact title of it. But it's, it's hard to read this poem and not, and not see that man, I'm getting my chance. I'm going to be out of here. It's a celebratory thing of getting to start on with a new life. I got to be me. Yes. <laughs> I, I, can, I can see the musical from St. Croix now. Get me out of here. Right? Yes. Let me out. Let me out. Maybe somebody <laughs> sent me. So what remains, if anything, of his heritage here? 
Not a lot, unfortunately. Other than um, storytelling by you, I love it. <laughs> no, his, so his mother, in order to make ends meet, she ran a small plant, uh, a small store up on a street in town called Company Street. It was a very small place. Um, she rented the space. They lived in a small apartment upstairs. They had to move a couple of times, um, and those structures are gone today. So um, they were destroyed either by storms or just by neglect long before people really realized where where Alexander and his mother and brother had lived. Um, what does remain are, is the house where his aunt had lived um, here on the island. It's a, a state called Grange. It's been changed many times over the years, so it doesn't look exactly like it did back in the 1740s, but that's really the only true legacy other than the place where he worked at Beekman. Other than coming to St. Croix and listening to Meredith Hardy tell the story. It's a fascinating story that not a lot of people realize. Meredith Hardy from the U.S. National Park Service right here in St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Thanks for joining us. And we'll be back with more of the CBS Radio Travel Hour right after this. Network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Welcome back to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. And welcome back to the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News. Uh, joining me now, the author of an amazing and fascinating book that most people would not normally want to run and read, but I encourage you to do so. It's called The Crash Detectives. It's about the the, the hidden world for most of us of the people who investigate and try to find the probable cause in airplane accidents. Her name is Christine Negroni. Christine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Peter. It's great to be here. You know, I've been covering air crash uh, investigations since 1971 uh, when I was working for Newsweek. And everything from, you know, uh, God, the Concorde stuff, all the way back to American Airlines Flight 191, Delta Airlines Flight 191, the wind shear accident in Dallas, uh, another, another wind shear accident in New Orleans with a Pan Am flight. I mean, the, the, we've now just celebrated, and here's the good news, we've now just celebrated probably the 15 safest years in commercial aviation in the history of aviation, and yet when something does go wrong, we remain as we should remain, fascinated by it because in determining what happened, we hopefully can learn from that and apply those lessons to make sure that that particular incident doesn't get repeated. So far, so good? Yeah. And you know, it's so interesting that you mentioned when you started in 71. I knew you'd been doing it longer than me. I didn't start till 96. But what's so interesting is the difference between the 70s to the 90s, the 90s to the 2000s is marked. Absolutely. So, you know, that, that we really... I mean, we just take for granted how safe aviation is today, but look back and over the course of your career, there would be accidents, two and three major accidents a year. That's not oh, the case oh, and anymore. more, and, and more. Uh, you know, I go back, we just celebrated, I, I hate to use the word celebrated, we just acknowledged the 40th anniversary of the worst aviation disaster in history. That was right. the collision of the Pan Am and the KLM 747s in Tenerife and the Canary Islands. And I investigated that. And what was interesting about that, story. There were just so many things that contributed to this terrible disaster that you would never even imagine would get together and, 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 and create this. Right. First of all, neither of those planes was supposed to be there that day. There was a terrorist incident at another airport that diverted both planes to this small airport. Um, and then um, both planes decided to refuel there because the fuel was cheaper. 
Uh, and it was a fuel in one case that was not really approved anywhere else but there because it was more flammable. The tower guys that day were preoccupied watching a soccer match and weren't really paying attention. Um, and the radio communications were being stepped on uh, so that as both planes were cleared to taxi, the KLM pilot, who, by the way, was the poster child for all of their advertising campaigns, he was the guy in every one of their ad campaigns because he was like central casting is what a good-looking pilot should be. Um, he lines up on the runway to take off. He, he tells the tower he's cleared to go. The tower does not give him a clearance. Um, the Pan Am plane is actually taxiing down the same runway in the opposite direction because it's one runway. They have to make a turn at the end. Um, and the co-pilot tells the KLM pilot, hey, are we cleared? And the K KLM pilot thinks, hey, we're the only guys here on the island. We're going. And the rest, of course, is history. It, and, and the ironies of this story, um, on that Pan Am 747, were, it was basically full of pa American passengers going on a cruise ship. Um, and uh, they weren't even supposed to be there anyway. They were holding the cruise ship for them because they were running late. This probably, in, in terms of really d d ridiculous irony, marks the only time I can think of where the people in the first class section survived. Because when the KLM plane hit the Pan Am plane, it cut it in half right behind the first class section. And I, I'll never forget talking to the Pan Am pilot who was reaching up to pull the fire handles in the cockpit and put his hand in the air. It, there was just nothing there. I remember, um, I remember the whole that. the whole top of the plane had been ripped off. Yeah, uh, and just an amazing story of of the combination. And I think this is proven in in almost every case that you've looked at, Christine. That no plane ever crashes for any one reason. It's a combination of reasons in concert that create a situation in which you can't recover. Absolutely. And that's always, it's so hard. You know, you're, you do journalism, I do journalism. It's so hard because journalists always want to know, like, what's the thing that made this happen? And there is no clear one thing that happens. In aviation accidents, they say it's always an unbroken chain of events. This that happened, then this, then this, and this. And that's truly the case. I've just never seen an accident that has not yeah. been uh, this unbroken chain of events. Although but, I will, and if I can tell a story that's uh, uh, it sort of like breaks the code of journalism here, it's one in which in the middle of every accident investigation, so many journalists who are not specialists in this either don't ask the right questions or lead us down a path that's going to make it even more confusing. And I'll give you an example. I was at the scene of a mid-air collision in Southern California a couple of years ago where two private planes collided above Corona Del Mar. One plane fell near the ocean. The other plane actually fell into a house. Luckily, nobody was in the house at the time. But of course, both, both planes suffered fatalities of all on board. And I was inside the area with the, the NTSB guy who actually happened to be in the neighborhood at the time. Normally, as you know, Christine, they don't get there that fast. Um, and we both come out. Uh, I happen to be a fireman, so I had a little bit of professional courtesy there. Uh, we both come out of the scene, and he's going to hold an impromptu press conference, during which time you know that at that point in the investigation, there's not a whole lot he can say. And the very first question that's asked of him from one of the reporters there from the local station, and this is what drove me nuts, the reporter said, sir, can you tell us were both planes flying at the same altitude when they hit? And so he could, and he could actually give an answer to that question. So well, so after he, was, he after <laughs> he rolled his eyes, after he rolled his eyes and shook his head, he said, "Absolutely, they, you know, th there was a no-brainer." But in, in this situation, uh, of, or any situation, there are so many different variables that have to be examined. People don't realize that in the that in a crash investigation, there are go teams. 
Um, there's human factors and metallurgy and engineering and, and engine and propulsion and weather and human factors, a big one. Um, and every one of those GO teams has to basically rule everything out before anything can be ruled in, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, I'll tell you something. When you were, you were talking about KLM, and I do, I do go into the KLM uh, accident in my book, not that it's so much of a mystery, but that I, I think it's sort of the, the line of demarcation, KLM, the KLM accident, because up until the, that point, until the 70s, really so much of accident investigations was looking at the metal what went wrong with the metal? What was wrong with the machine? But when that when KLM happened and they realized, you know, these were two perfectly fine airplanes, there was nothing wrong with the airplane. It was the humans who had, you know, had made these errors, you know, in all aspects. That that's when they really started investigations really started to focus more on the human and how do we fix the human? And that's sort of the second generation of air aviation safety is dealing with the human. And not all of the fixes, as we, you know, as you well know, not all of the fixes have actually wound up, you know, solving the problem. Automation exactly, but, was supposed to make aviation safer, but, you know, automation right. sometimes confuses pilots. But, you know, you talk about the human factor. I go back to the Korean Airlines flight in Guam, um, where the pilot was landing following a beacon that didn't exist, and he was actually flying to the outer beacon as opposed to the runway. Even when his co-pilot said to him, I think you're going the wrong way, in those days, the, the culture in the cockpit was the captain was king. Do not disagree with the captain. And he flew it right into the mountain. Yeah. Uh, and, and because of that and one or, one or two other Korean Airlines incidents, uh, they had to change the entire culture of the airline. Where the cockpit protocols now are that the co-pilot has every right as the flight engineer in those cases when they used to have three-man crews uh, to question a decision made in the cockpit. And, with, and only with mixed success. As yes. Asiana two one four shows us, and that to, to me raises it raises to what I think is maybe the third you know sort of the third generation is this idea that everyone is equal and that everyone can actually contribute to safety works in some cultures and doesn't in others, and I think that we may be at the point where we have to recognize you can't change culture and to 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 sort of in, uh, initiate this this effort to make all culture like Western culture in which autonomy and, uh, you know, individuality is, is, uh, is, you know, glorified, it may not necessarily work in other cultures. And that's, you know, I've been saying that to air, to air crash investigators when I speak about this, speak about the book, you know, I don't know whether people will embrace that or not, but I think it's certainly worth looking at because well, we're, not, we're not having success. I know. Well, look at Asiana 214. For those people who don't remember that crash, I covered that one as well. That was the craziest one of all because it happened in 2020 visibility on a clear day where the instrument landing system at San Francisco International was not working, but no big deal because you make a visual approach. And here was this plane uh, flown by guys who, let's face it, today, and I want to make an argument that a lot of pilots might not like, but today pilots don't fly planes, they monitor systems. And, and you really earn your salary as a pilot when you actually have to fly the plane. And here is a situation where they actually had to fly the plane. And, Christine, they didn't. Well, yes. And so we go back to sort of the solutions to the human factor have not necessarily helped the human. That's an automation dilemma because airlines want their pilots to fly the, fly the airplane on, you know, using the automated functions because they are more accurate. They are more precise. 
but what they do is undermine the pilot's own piloting skills. Now, I think this is generational. Peter, I think you and me and pilots of a certain age, you know, of the captain level of, you know, they're over the age of 50 and they learn to fly as young boys or girls and, you know, they general aviation, they're stick and rudder guys. That's the expression, yep. you know that. Yep. I think they're on their way out. And I think the new pilot, the younger pilot, the 30-year-olds, they're not going to be stick-and-rudder people. I think they're going to be systems managers, and that's okay. But the transition is going to be unpleasant. Well, you know what? I go beyond stick-and-rudder. They're going to be gamers. They're the guys who are flying the drones out of Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada, but actually attacking places in in Iraq and Yemen and every place else. Right, but as we've seen with every transition in aviation, it's a little messy on the way. It's a little messy on the way. We're speaking with Christine Negroni, the author of The Crash Detectives. Stick with us. We're going to take a quick break and back with Christine right after this. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Welcome back to the CBS Travel Hour with Peter Greenberg. And we're back with uh, the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News. We've been speaking with Christine Negroni, the author of a fascinating book called The Crash Detectives. Whether it's the Asiana plane that hits the dock in San Francisco at the airport, or 40 years ago, the collision of the Pan Am and KLM 747s, or... Uh, criminal investigations like Pan Am 103 over Lockerbie on December 21st, 1988. Uh, the work that the crash detectives have is just amazing. You know, you, you mentioned earlier, Christine, the, uh, you know, looking at the metal. I go back to American Airlines Flight 191, uh, a terrible tragedy and the worst tragedy in American soil in history the, of the May 25th, 1979 on Memorial Day weekend when an American Airlines DC-10 on takeoff from Chicago loses the left engine of a twin-engine plane essentially becomes asymmetrical, turns upside down and, and explodes into flames, everybody dies. Nobody really knew what happened, but what they knew is that the engine had separated from the plane. They found, of course, they found the engine on the runway. They found parts of the engines littered everywhere else. And as they begin to, began to investigate, I, this is the most fascinating one of all, people thought that the plane was defective. Uh, people were afraid to fly on the DC-10. In fact, the DC-10s were grounded, but before they were grounded, here is the interesting thing. There was a, a metallurgy guy who wasn't even on the, on, on the investigative team who looked at everything and said, did you find any parts of the, of the fasteners from the engine on the runway? Yeah, we found the bolt. He said, can I see the bolt? And they brought in the bolt and he, looked, he took one look at the bolt and he said, this bolt wasn't, wasn't the, uh, the victim. This bolt was the cause. And the reason why he was able to determine, which, which, which blew the whole case wide open, was that American Airlines was trying to save a couple of hours every time they did an engine change in their maintenance base in Tulsa. And the maintenance manual from McDonnell Douglas basically said, when doing an engine change, never use a, a forklift. Uh, use literally pulleys and levers so that you maintain the pressure on the engine as you're, as you're raising it under the wing to fasten it with four different bolts. And Americans said, no, we're going to do it our way. And just announced to the FAA that's what they were going to do. And they used the forklift truck, and they had the engine under the wing with three of the four bolts, or two of the four bolts fastened when the lunch whistle blew. And they all went to lunch. And during lunch, the forklift lost pressure. 
the weight of the engine on those two bolts bent one, broke the other. They came back from lunch, put two more bolts in, flew the plane empty on a ferry flight to Chicago, and then its next flight was fully loaded on Memorial Day weekend, and we all know what happened. And when that happened, and the NTSB and the FAA started to investigate this maintenance procedure, they found out there were cracks on the wings of other DC-10s, which had been similarly maintained, not just with American, but United Airlines as well. And that's when the plane got grounded. A perfectly safe airplane, right? Well, yes, uh, you know, but I think a good investigation, and I haven't read the probable cause report on that accident, but a good investigation would also look at the manufacturer and say, are these maintenance uh, procedures going to be complied with? I mean, because you have to understand how they work in real-life operations. You know, they, they always say that it's the... The, the designer, you know, needs to understand what the engineer does, and the engineer needs to understand what the maintenance guy does, and the maintenance guy needs to understand what the pilot does, because, you know, it's it's not just an isolated airplane. It's It works in a system, and that system requires fast maintenance and, you know, and, and what humans are likely to do, what shortcuts they're likely to take, because we are human and we do those things. So, it's, you know, I, it, you, you make very, very clear the point that this is, um, you know, it's sort of a... Uh, the the little thing you don't expect the lunch whistle blows, but these you know the the smart people are the ones who recognize that these are the systems in which the you know exactly. the, the, the whole the whole plan rises or falls. All right, so now let me it's give you another story. Sc- I, it is an amazing story. Let me give you another scenario, which is one of my biggest pet peeves right now. It's essentially, without being alarmist, the accident waiting to happen, and that's this. It's called the MROs. An MRO stands for Maintenance Repair Operation. And most airlines these days will outsource a lot of their heavy maintenance to MROs that are not even based in the United States. They're in El Salvador. They're in, in Asia. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. And, these, and I've been to these organizations, and they do a very good job. There's only one small problem, Christine. It's called the oversight. Who's inspecting the work? And you find that the FAA is underfunded. They don't have enough inspectors, and even if they do have enough inspectors, uh, they don't have the time to get on a plane and go and actually inspect the work. And what gets even crazier is that under protocols established by, I don't know who was on acid when this was, ex- was, was, was agreed to, if an FAA inspector wants to go inspect an MRO overseas, he has to give them one week's notice. That's like the health inspector telling the restaurant we'll be there in a week. Um, and then when he gets there, he doesn't have enough time to inspect the work. He's only inspecting the paperwork, and anybody can tick off a box. I got a problem with that. What do you think? Yeah, no, no. I think I think you raise very valid concerns, and 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 you're right to say you know this is not a matter of is it in El Salvador. It's a matter of distance because, you know, the there's no reason to question that the the conscientiousness of people who are working on airplanes. They have a vested interest in keeping their work you know, making sure the work is good because they want to continue to get United's or Americans, you know, or whoever's business. So it is definitely that. But, you know, one of the issues, the FAA does have to address this because one of the issues is the biggest growth in aviation, and this is American butts in seats, the biggest growth in aviation is not here in America. It's in China. It's in India. It's in the Pacific. And so these are, you know, these 
the, the maintenance of those airplanes is naturally going to be done in those areas. You can't ferry an A380 back to the States, or not that we have them here, but you can't ferry a big airplane, you know, halfway around the world to do maintenance. You're going to have maintenance being done in those areas, and there's growth. There's, there's pressure from those countries to start getting these maintenance operations in their countries. I mean, they're contributing to the purchase of these big airplanes, and they want to get some of the benefits. So we're going to see, you know, the diffusion of maintenance, not just, you know, in the North America, but around the world. And these are countries without a great aviation legacy. Exactly. So and, you're are, seeing the these, growth, and you're seeing the growth of numerous low-cost carriers, uh, yes, whether it's, it's Air Air Asia X or so many, there, there's probably new airlines started in China every week. I'm exaggerating, but not by much. Uh, you're seeing new airlines starting in India, new airlines starting in, in Thailand, new airlines starting in Turkey. Uh, and the real question is, what are the protocols and are they following them? And then who's actually doing the inspection and is it in their best economic interest to do the hard work that's needed? Yes. Yes. Those are all important questions and they are global issues. And now, and now, having said that, we've just celebrated the 15 safest years in the history of commercial aviation. It's a batting average. I don't think we can improve. I think the issue is, can we maintain it? And, uh, and then as we see fewer and fewer major accidents, especially in the United States, uh, that doesn't mean we should be complacent. It means that we need to apply the lessons that we've learned from the previous accidents to make sure they don't happen again. Well, it's true. I mean, you do have to say, though, I know you see this, Peter. I certainly do. People's expectation of safety on an airplane is far higher than their expectation of safety in any other endeavor in the world. In any. That's true. I mean, you know, you move furniture with wearing flip-flops. Trust me, you're more at risk of losing a foot doing that than you are getting in an airplane. You know, people are so, people are so, um, their expectation of safety on an airplane is just you know, it's it's beyond anywhere else. I guess I've made that point already. Uh, you know, and so that, you know, because of the pressure is on politicians, that's what they respond to. Look, just the other day, there was this story about a, uh, two girls being denied boarding on United Airlines because they were wearing leggings, a story that was very distorted in the media. But the point is, who even cares? And this was a global headline. What oh, it, my was, point it was in- global. You know, you talk about the, the, uh, the leggings incident on United Airlines. Um, and these two girls being told they wouldn't be boarded on the plane unless they changed their clothes because it violated the dress code for United Airlines employees and families of employees. My, of course, my initial was, there's a dress code? Are you kidding me? I mean, I'm amazed people even wear clothes on planes these days. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I think there should be a rule that if you want to cut your nails on the plane, you need to step outside. <laughs> what do you think? Well, and so, you know, so Peter, can you really fault an airline for trying to hold just its teeny weeny little line, you know, between us and them? I'm so, I'm so with you on that. But the reason that I even brought up that point, poor United Airlines, it's not often that I say, you know, poor airline, but in this case, I truly, they are just getting the wrong end of the stick. But the reason I bring it up is only to say that I, I just can't think of an industry that is as exposed to every hiccup, every every fingernail clipping. It is international news. And that's why, you know, so just to, to bring it back, that's why even small events on airliners are big events, you know, or big global news events. And so they have to be uh you know, doubly, triply aware, and that's why, and, and government and the companies are just have to be constantly aware of that. 
They well, can't have a nose landing gear, you know, light come on, because that's going to be tweeted out on FlightAware, and every av geek, and there are millions of them, every ga- av geek is going to be tweeting that. Well, I, I have the title for your next book. The um, Toenail Investigators. <laughs> no? Okay. <laughs> All I can say to you, I'm sure you know about it, but to your listeners is just go to PassengerShaming.com or whatever the heck it's called. Oh, my God. That's unbelievable. See, like, like, you don't actually want to see this. Some of the things you can't unsee, but the toenail clipping and the people, I mean, the whole leggings and, and what the, how much people's bodies they share with the rest of the world. It's just, it's frightening. <laughs> you know what? We should just do a, a weekly television show with absolutely no shame on our part, which is, we should just call it, What Were You Thinking? I think it's been done. I think I it's been done. I just try and avoid those sites because you find yourself in a complete downward spiral when you start looking at this stuff. I know. No pun intended about aviation safety. That's right. Bottom line is the name of the book, The Crash Detectives, the author, Christine Negroni. Fascinating book because it's not only the lessons that you learn, it's staying on top of the lessons that you apply. Christine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That concludes this episode of the CBS Radio Travel Hour. I'm Peter Greenberg, travel editor for CBS News, and we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.